0: Hey, I promised you some resources. Before we get into tonight, I want to deliver on those. The end-of-life issues, I said, uh, every case is unique. If you were here last week in the Q&A, I, I promised to bring some resources to you. Uh, one that's free and easy to access is on the nrlc.org website, which you might remember from back in the day, the uh, National Right to Life committee the the website though if you go and look there under the there's a medical ethics section which you can access through the euthanasia tag and there's a whole section on what they call will to live which deals with do not resuscitate orders and artificially maintaining life and those were the issues that you wanted more information on that i didn't feel like i could principalize in our context But there's a lot more information on this website, and that would be one I would recommend you to. It's easy to get and and, uh, free and out there and available. Uh, A book that I might recommend that I thought did a good job in the chapter on end-of-life issues is Christian Ethics by Norm Geisler. And if you do access that book, I think you can get it. I don't think it's on Logos, but I do I do think it's on Kindle. I know it's on Kindle. Of course, you can order a hard copy. But if you go to the chapter on euthanasia, and I don't think it's combined with suicide. I think it's just the euthanasia chapter. At the end, it's got some of the right do not resuscitate issues and factors involved uh, in passive and active euthanasia. So that, I think, was one of the more helpful the sets of principles if you are going to leave some for yourself or your family to think through that's good. And then one last one that is not in print anymore, but I'm sure you can find it probably for a penny at the Amazon Marketplace, Right to Die, Caring Alternatives to Euthanasia. And in that book, just certainly will help you as you weigh, uh, whether it's for yourself in a will or a, tr- or a trust, or whether it's for your loved ones, if they're uh, on life support, to be able to think through the issues of suffering in life and all that we've dealt with. But, but those are two books and one website, and, and I think those two together may help you if you are working through those things for your own desires and your own legal documents and so forth. So I have delivered on that promise. A little bit late, but uh, but there it is. So we're going to dive into tonight. We've got some issues that I hope are uh, pertinent and they certainly are in the news all the time. And we want to deal with those from a biblical perspective. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Pray with please. God, we recognize that you are God, who has all authority over us, you made us, you sustain us, we will answer to you one day. Uh, Everyone in the world will, and uh, we acknowledge that we're grateful, God, and we want to say thanks for giving us the insight and the ability, the life to be able to recognize that and to make us, which I hope is the case for everyone in the room, diligent, teachable students of your word to find truth and to be able to discover its rightful application. And even though many things we'll talk about tonight uh, are beyond our decision-making, we certainly have decisions to make, whether it's in the voting booth or even in how we discuss and respond to current issues in the news, what goes on even in our local government. We have decisions to make that sometimes are aided by... uh, clear biblical worldview that we gain about these very important topics that we'll deal with tonight. So God, help us through this. Help us to think clearly. Pray for my mouth and my voice and my ability to Clearly communicate these issues. May you enliven everyone's spirit to be attentive and be able to actively listen tonight and be able to have this kind of stored away brick by brick, uh, principle by principle, to create that uh, very solid and firm, rightful biblical Christian worldview that we all need. So, God, thanks for our study tonight. Uh, Make it a good one, I pray, in Jesus' name. All right, let's talk a little bit about the promise of peace. That sounds so good, and it is so good. And uh, if you want to think about the promise of peace and read it in the Bible, uh, unless you're talking about the coming of the new covenant that gives us judicial and relational peace with God, beyond that every other description of a tangible, experienced, national, communal, societal, uh, ethnic peace in the world, it's always going to be future. And and everything you look at in the scripture is going to call our hope and our focus to a life and a world and a community that is peaceful to the future. And they're great promises. I think of this one that is often quoted. It's also... Uh, in Malachi, but he will judge between the nations and shall dis- decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. So we've got weapons of warfare now. We turn all of that, that mechanism and technology into harvesting and planting and their spears into pruning hooks. And so we go fishing, we go working, we go gathering, but we're not killing each other. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now that's a great promise. Many people see that and they, they, they cling on to it and that's what they want. And they put their no war bumper sticker on their car and they are all about peace. We're all for peace. There's a problem though, the interim problem. And we could, by the way, pile up those promises of peace that are in two phases, by the way, the millennial peace that will come for Israel and all the nations until the end of the millennium where there's rebellion. And then after that thousand years, we will have the establishment of eternal peace in the new Jerusalem when there is is no tempter there is no uh, violator there is no untried heart we have now peace uh, from the inside of people out and and all of that goes on for eternity so peace coming in two phases where we don't have national conflict we don't have any kind of relational conflict uh, the problem in the interim though comes from the two verses that precedes the verse that i just read for you i realize that's kind of small i'm sorry it shall come to pass, if you do have your Bibles open or you're quick and deaf to get around in your electronic Bible, you might want to look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Now think of that. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills. I understand this is poetic language. This isn't prose. But still we get the idea of God establishes his kingdom, his economy. It is above all the others. It's recognized above all the others. And all the nations shall flow to it. You want information. You want truth. You want knowledge. You want adjudication. You want any kind of of intellectual uh, clarification. You go to where God and his kingdom is. They'll flow to it. And many people shall come and they'll say, they'll say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's kind of the idealized prophetic way to describe this kingdom and the center of this kingdom of Jerusalem out of Zion uh, shall go the law there goes the, the instructions the direction and the word of the lord from jerusalem now thou we have verse 4 and we have this great picture of everyone taking all their implements of warfare and refashioning them into implements of agrarian farming and and fishing and and, and all the things that you might expect in a peaceful utopia but you don't have it until the preceding description which is God is a God who is established in the world and he leads and everyone looks to him. All the nations look to him and they all want to learn what does God have to say? What should we do? What are the rules? What are the guidelines? What are the laws? Now, now that's nothing like the world we live in. It's nothing like the 15th century, the 10th century, the 5th century, the 1st century or, or the 10th century B.C. We've never had this experience Even when, in the golden years of Israel, in the middle monarchy of Solomon, when things were all just going perfectly, at least as as well as they could, still, all the nations were still rattling their sabers at the borders. It was still a tenuous situation. You didn't have the nations saying, oh, teach us. We want to learn the ways of God. Uh, We didn't have peace. It was temporal peace, and certainly around the world and in various places, we, we had conflict. So the interim problem, I suppose if you want to put it in a word, is that people are not living under the Lord. Of God, they're not. They're not. They're not living righteously. They're not looking to God to have the instructions of God be the constitution for their lives. They are sinful. They are like sheep, each going to its own way. They don't submit to the shepherd, and so we have this. This. This description isn't happening. And I'm all for peace, and I want peace, and I pray for peace, and I shoot for peace, and I seek peace with everyone I can have peace with. But until the world looks like this. See I just know that that promise still is yet future now Even in heaven, you think if anything's going to go the way it ought to go, you think it ought to go the right way in heaven. Just, I mean, I just want to call some things that I know you already know, but call them to your attention. Here's here's Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now, the word is used, it's war, it's conflict, right? There's not harmony, there's not peace, there's not unity. Why? Because we have among the angelic ranks a sinner and we have among his clan sinners that want to follow the even greater sinner and they then are always going to be pitted against there's going to be no harmony or peace between those two and there's war even in heaven where God is now reigning until the sinners are eradicated until everyone who does not want to submit to the shepherd is out of the economy you're going to have conflict and if you want a test case for it, in a clean room, so to speak, in a sanitized environment where you think, well, you don't have the, the cursed ground, you don't have all the disease, you don't have sickness, you don't have people with migraine headaches and short-tempered... No, you have perfect individuals except for a moral problem of a heart issue, a sin issue, and that moral problem creates conflict, even even in heaven. The promise of peace has got to be future until... Sinners are vanquished. So the forecast then, the realistic forecast is, as Daniel 9 says, and to the end, until his kingdom is established, there shall be war. That's the promised forecast. Desolations, all the things that happen in the wake of war, where kingdoms fall and people die and battlefields are filled with fallen soldiers, all of that is going to happen. It's all decreed. Desolations are decreed. That's the way it's going to be. And that's not just an Old Testament perspective when God was upset right, and had his rest in the intertestamental period and woke up in the New Testament feeling better? No, things don't change. In the New Testament, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the Prince of Peace said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. See, the end is a good news word for us. When the end comes, then we're going to have peace. Then we're going to have everyone whose heart is inclined by God's grace to follow and submit to the instructions and the law of the Lord. We're going to have that. We'll have peace then. But until then, we've got war. The end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, these are not conflicting statements. People who don't know the Bible, they don't read their Bible. They don't seek to understand their Bible. They don't read passages in context. It's like dropping Shakespeare in front of them, and they read line here and a line there and a line here and a line there, and they never read the whole thing. They don't know how this book works. See, to them, this is incomprehensible. Well, the Bible talks about peace. God wants peace. God is love. God wants peace. Peace, peace, peace. And then, oh, we have all these statements. How do these work? I don't know. I like the peace verses better. Let's just go with those. The problem is we have to understand the Bible. We have to understand the whole of the Bible. We need to interpret passage by passage. We need to understand the context and the flow of revelatory history. And if we don't, we'll look at these things we won't understand them. Is there peace coming? Yes. Will these weapons of warfare and, and implements of warfare be turned into implements for good and culture and, and edification and feeding? All Absolutely. It's coming when? When the end comes. That's when it comes. So the forecast is war. How war ends. This is so important to point out. I never hear it preached on. I never hear it discussed when people start talking about warfare or peace or passivism or just war theory. I don't hear a lot about this. War ends. If the peace is coming, how does it come? Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war the kings assemble there in this place called armageddon and they assemble to wage war against him there's war it's the final war it's the last war and i say that i should put it in quotations because there's another war coming at the end of the millennial kingdom as short as that one is but there is war that ends the warring of the nations to where we can have peace what is it that ushers in peace war I mean that's just important for christians to understand what is the thing that allows the world to experience peace for a thousand years the battle of armageddon what is it that allows the eternal state to be ushered into the world well all these people born in the millennial kingdom have to then make a decision and when they make a decision to rebel against god there's another war and that war takes place and god then has to put them down by force and violence and that takes place at the end and then we have the eternal state And then there's peace, eternal peace. So the promise of peace is very important for us to understand. But the principle needs to be extracted from the overall flow of biblical history. And we need to understand how this works. Let's just put it this way. Sin is bridled throughout biblical history, throughout any kind of history you want to read. If it's accurately presented to us, we know sin is bridled by the threat of force. We know that's how it works. Sin is bridled by the threat of force, and when sin is unbridled and spills beyond the borders of what is tolerable by people, individuals, groups, nations, whatever it might be, well, then war is employed. And that's even true as it relates to God's economy. It's true in heaven with Michael, the archangel, and the good and elect angels of heaven, and it's true for God himself. It's true for the faithful and true writer of the white horse, Christ himself, in the Battle of Armageddon. When rebellion hits a point, That becomes unbridled, then there's war, and war is employed to put it down. passage may help. Revelation chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. I just want to think about how God even looks at the church. We have people in the church that are professing Christians, but they don't possess the spirit of God. They're with us in terms of looking like sheep, but they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. They don't hold to the biblical gospel and the truth of God's word. They're they're heretics, they're apostates, and they are people that are not true Christians. Well, in the church as he addresses the church in Revelation chapter 2, he looks at the church and he says, there are some among you here that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I preached on this more on the whole interesting, what is that all about another time? But you know there's a problem here. And that problem, sin, when it's unbridled in the church and it goes on, there's going to be a response from God. Therefore, repent. And if not, if you don't repent, if you continue in this, I will come to you, Christ says, and war against you, or in this case, against them. He's speaking to the faithful in the church, I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth. Which, by the way, is the same poetic analogy that is used in Revelation nineteen, when Christ comes back and ends the Battle of Armageddon with the sword of his mouth. It's also what is spoken of at the end of the millennial kingdom when the quell, the rebellion, is also quelled by by the sword of his mouth. All of this imagery is the principle God is using even now in the church age is what I'm saying. Against his own church. He's willing to use words and enlist words like warfare to describe his willingness with force to put down unbridled sin. Sin is bridled by the threat of force. And when sin is unbridled, war is employed. Those are my words. I don't know. Maybe under the crucible they will break apart at some point. But I think it's a good place for us to begin our discussion tonight. Thinking of peace, I'm all for it. I want it. Pray for it. Work toward it. But I understand the context and I understand how war and the threat of force works and has always worked. Well, if you're talking about the threat of war and you're talking about this principle and you're going to try and apply it throughout the scripture now and throughout our experience, I still have the question of Exodus chapter 20, which simply says you shall not murder and ultimately swords are used to kill people, not paddle people. Would you agree with that? That's what they're for. And when Christ comes and speaks about his warring against his church or his warring against the rebellious world, he uses a sword because it's an implement to kill people. Even if you wanted to use something that might even leave someone battered and beaten by the side of the road, you might use a, a metaphor that relates to the Old Testament word that we talk about, the shebet that you might use to, to, to beat someone, or your staff that you might use to club them over the head, but you're using the implement of a sword, an iron sword. Clearly, that's a, that's a one-stroke implement to kill someone. So what's with that? Killing now becomes this important part of God's decreed economy? That's somehow good? Well, it says here in Exodus chapter 20, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, the question of Exodus 20 we've dealt with. Do you remember? Was it week two or three, the sanctity of life? We dealt with the issue of murder, and we had to have that principle established so we could think through all the things we were dealing with in in discussions about the sanctity of life. We talked about the word itself, murder. The word murder is distinct from the word, and I think I gave you three different three contrasts. Casting hebrew words that week if not go if you weren't there and you didn't catch that go back and listen to that and you'll see and we looked at a passage i believe in numbers 35 that allowed us to compare how the words are used this word murder is a word we help to establish in our own thinking. And I'll just give you one of the punchlines from Numbers 33 that helps us with this. The idea, is we even use in jurisprudence today, the concept of malice, a forethought that we think of ahead of time, a, a plotting or a willingness because of malice in my heart, bad in my heart, to, to kill someone, to snuff someone's life out. For instance, in the description here with all the different words, harangue and rashach, and we looked at all the different Hebrew words, he says if someone here is pushed Out of hatred, hurled something at him perhaps, or lied in wait for them so that that person died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand. Right There's the description of malice aforethought. So that he died. Then he who struck the blow, and even in that passage we had all those different words for killing. This now is a specific word. He shall be put to death, different word, because he is a murderer. That's the word of Exodus 20. So we understand there's several descriptions of of people being killed in the Bible while regrettable the idea of murder which seems to be this ensconced very supreme governing ethical principle for all mankind we should always be against killing people because of the Ten Commandments. But we made this distinction, and you may have to go back and understand the distinction as we tried to spend some time on it back in week three or two or whatever week it might have been. What I'm going to now try and establish is that there's at least three contexts in which warfare or killing, the ultimate act of violent behavior, force, the ultimate expression of force toward an individual to kill them does not fall into the condemnation of Exodus chapter 20. So let's look at all three of those, starting with number two, personal application of the principle of the force of threat restraining evil and the overflow of evil being responded to by some kind of expression of warfare. We'll use that, obviously, in the broadest sense ...in a personal situation. So, number two, let's talk a little bit about self-defense. And we could spend all night on that, but let's just get what we can... ...in terms of principle here to show you maybe what a biblical view of this would be. Let's talk about this when assaulted by evil. And I could break this down further, but I think this is just an umbrella statement... ...is the way we ought to look at it. For instance, which goes beyond even just someone trying to kill me or threaten my life... ...although that may be the fear underlining this passage in Exodus 22... Here's the example in the law code of the Old Testament, Exodus 22, verses 1 and 2. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So we have this principle of restitution, and there's various levels of restitution depending on what the person steals or how the person does it or what the the circumstances are, and that's all throughout Exodus and and Deuteronomy. So we have those rules. But now if that kind of person who wants to steal my property— comes in he's found breaking in and is struck now the assumption here is that the person is trying to defend his property the person who owns these things strikes him so that he dies this is a very clear and consistent principle then there is no blood guilt for him there's no blood guiltiness as though we were describing someone like in numbers chapter 35 who kills with malice aforethought this is the principle we see throughout the scripture of self-defense even the mortal use of force In response to someone who has come, in this case, into my house to steal my things... And the response to that thief is to strike him so that he dies. Now, you could go on in Exodus 22. If we had time, we would. We would see the exceptions and some things that we should relate to that. But I'm trying to establish the principle. How does this work as it relates to self-defense? Assaulted by evil. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 17. You know the context there. It's almost, you know, it's not Mad Max level. But it's pretty uh, ruthless outlaw living there as you're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you've got Sanballat and Tobiah kind of heading up the Rebellion. Rebellious force against the building of the walls, and they're working really quickly here in in a couple of months to try and build these walls. And and the description is that's all spoken of positively, and you can read the whole of Nehemiah to catch their mindset in this. But it said those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that labored on the work with one hand. So they're working on the wall with one hand, and they had their hand on their pistol, their weapon, their knife, their dagger with the other hand. Why? Because the threat of the evil and the chaotic societal breakdown that was there and all the malice that was directed toward the people that were rebuilding. And there's a lot of drama in the book of Nehemiah about all that. But all of this is spoken of, as a matter of fact, as a quote unquote necessary evil, if you will. And again, if you're going to call it a necessary evil, you've got to call the Battle of Armageddon a necessary evil, I guess we will. You've got to call Jesus saying he's going to war against his church and the false teachers in the church with, with the the sword of his own. You've got to call that a necessary evil. I want to be careful about calling what God does evil or what Christ does evil. And And even in this case, is it evil for them to carry their weapons while they're building their wives? Say, no, but... That's the kind of the idiom of our colloquial American way to speak of uh, the bad of having to perhaps, in this case, kill someone with your th- with your sword because they're jumping you while you're trying to build this wall. Or the principle that Jesus throws out here, and I know he's just illustrating another point, but he's making his point based on a principle that everyone there apparently agreed on, including himself, and that is when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... His goods are safe. That's how he does it. The threat of force, it's bridles and curtails sin. In that case, you stealing my stuff. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Now he lays out the historical, you know, not just historical, but the modern reality of the first century, and then he builds his principle and teaches his point that he's trying to make about himself and about his kingdom. But in this case, the founding principle, much like looking at the lilies of the field and saying they're beautiful, we assume Christ thinks they're beautiful as well. He's using that statement of indicative fact to make his spiritual point. And in this Case we assume again that there's no disagreement in God's mind about the strong man being fully armed, guarding his palace. All I could learn from this that wouldn't square with biblical principles is him putting his trust in his armor, which of course we never should. Just like it says, right, Psalm 21:28. If I'm guarding the city, or if the watchman's guarding the city, right? Unless the Lord watches the city, he guards it in vain. What does that mean? Nehemiah's guys shouldn't have swords while they build the wall. No, of course not. You shouldn't put your trust in armor. We've made that point repeatedly. Or one that I taught on not too long ago when I was dealing with the principle, which we'll look at in a second. We won't even mention that because we're going to look at it in a second, but we we looked at that passage in, in Luke 22 and rushed on ahead to that garden scene where after he sent his disciples out to go out without A walking stick, a kind of stick that is for defensive purposes, which I tried to make that distinction if you remember that sermon. But the idea of a defensive weapon they weren't to take, and now he says, great, you didn't take the money bag, you didn't take extra sandals, you didn't take a knapsack. Now take your backpack, take everything. If you have two tunics, as a matter of fact, sell one and get yourself a sword. Let the one who has his money bag take it, likewise the knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Better for you to be cold than you to be about the business of God, like the workers on the wall, without a sword on your hip as you go about the work of the kingdom. You better protect yourself and defend yourself. We could go on. But the principle of self-defense is clearly taught in the scripture. And when you start employing images like swords, they're not for paddling people. And they're not just for rattling in your saber, although that is an important part of the principle. The threat of force curtails evil. But when evil is unbridled then the response is that war is employed, or in this case, self-defense, the warring on an individual person. When assaulted by evil, that's the principle. It's all throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, jurisprudence in our culture, the law based on a lot of Western cultures are all referring to repeatedly in their, at least the explanation of how they come to their, their legal codes in modern day on the Bible. I mean, the Bible has been the, the guiding book, as it said, three uses of the law. One use of the law is to show you that you're sinful. Another use of the law is to show you how to live for Christ. But the other use of the law that's talked about, theologians like to talk about, was the use of the law that helped us govern how we do society. And many societies, countless societies have used the scripture to do that. And all of our self-defense laws, at least early on, people would point back to biblical principles to be able to establish those that someone is not guilty in defending themselves when they are assaulted by Eve now I just want to say though this is sanctioned by God what you'll find in most places at least is that it is legislated by government I just want to add this verse in Esther when the king sent them back and they were going to go about and well you know the story But in in, in the book of Esther, look at how this is put. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. So the Jews now knew they were under special threat with the anti-Semitism of their day, which is still alive and well, as we read in the newspaper this week. But the idea of them now under certain threat of all that had gone on, they were now because we could point to a sanctioned biblical principle, but here is this Persian king saying, hey, listen, you got the right to defend your life, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province... That might attack them. Even if a kid is involved in attacking you. Or a woman is involved in attacking you. If they're coming to plunder. Or, and then to plunder their goods. So you kill them. You've got the right then to take their sword. Or their money bag or whatever. All of this legislation. Which is not in line with the Mosaic teaching this is not a jewish person but here we have a secular government giving the rights at least legislating the rights that are sanctioned by god for self-defense even to the place of killing a child if they are coming to kill annihilate or destroy you and their arm example one example of others we could look at now the misapplied principle we have to talk about letter b And I don't want to repeat everything we recently preached on, but perhaps you weren't here or you don't go here on the weekends, which we'd invite you to do. But in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 29, we tackle this passage where Jesus says, the Sermon on the Plain, much like on the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. He says, I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And to the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now you look at that principle, and again, it's much like seeing the verses about swords into plowshares. I like that verse. That fits well with a certain mindset in our culture. So we start to say, well, clearly this should apply in everything from local municipal legislation to what's going on in in the foreign policy of our country, or what happens when someone breaks into my house at night to do harm to me or steal my property. We take this principle, and what I'm saying here in letter B is we're frequently misapplying the principle. Now, you know the principle. It's quoted often and sometimes quoted to us, often by non-Christians. What we need to do is understand the context. In the context, we pointed this out when we taught on this passage, was very clear that the context is about people hating us and excluding us and reviling us and spurning our name as evil on account of the son of man. Now, when someone comes to steal my stuff or kidnap my children, rape my wife, burn my house down in the middle of the night, they're not doing that I, w- I mean, they might be in, in the future, but they're not doing that currently uh, and plotting to do that because I am a follower of Christ. And we looked at this in the sermon when it talked about how we deal with these people in the world that will ridicule us for Christ. And even to the place we quoted in in Hebrews where people were willing to let their their property be confiscated, which was a perfect example of this illustration. They came to confiscate their property because they were followers of the way. They were followers of the Christ. And because of that, they were willing to do it. They were willing to submit themselves to martyrdom. You want to kill me? Kill me. I'm willing to do that. Because I'm going to align myself with Christ... Now get that sermon if you didn't hear it, and I wish I would have brought the sermon number for you, but it's there in the passage I was teaching on in Luke chapter six. That passage has to be understood in context regarding what Christ is uh, expressing. He's expressing the principles that should apply when, because of our alliance with Christ, we are attacked and become the enemies of either the state, the government, or rival factions of whatever, because we stand with Christ. This is not about criminal injustice. This is not getting mu- it's not about being mugged behind, you know, in the park structure behind the mall. This is not about crime. This is about the kind of thing that is expressed because of, to set the passage up, because of you are allied with the Son of Man. They hate you, revile you, exclude you because of your theology, not because they like your gold necklace or really like your car that they want to steal. All right, 1401, we started the new year with that sermon. What a great way to start the new, clarifying biblical myths, misunderstandings. All right, could say more. Let's leave it at that. Let's get into the more broader, bigger issues. Self-defense, I hope you understand, is a biblical principle. We've got to look at the justice system now. We want peace. We'd like peace in our society. We'd like peace in our neighborhoods. I'd like peace. The government, the Bible says, is now sanctioned to provide that, establish that, enforce that. The government becomes the, the means by which God wants to do this. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, says, be subject for the Lord's sake. Now, that's a mouthful, and we'll get to Romans 13 in a second. But because God has established authority, we recognize that our submission as individuals to that government is for His sake. To every human institution whether to the emperor. Now, this is interesting. I use the word imperfect governments because I know they're imperfect. And a lot of people say, well, we can't in any way submit ourselves to the justice system of our country because they're imperfect. Well, it's True that it's imperfect, but in Peter's day, clearly this was imperfect too because the emperor at this particular point in the mid-first century is Nero. And we, we know when Peter wrote this book within a, a, a window of about three or four years, more likely two or three years, and Nero was on the throne. Who was dressing up young boys to marry in the colonnade, and he was, uh, he'd killed his mother uh, out of threat and fear for his own position. I mean, he's not a good guy. And here he says listen, the, the, the adulterous, perverse, immoral, the murderous emperor, we submit, not for Nero's sake, but for the Lord's sake. Whether it's the emperor as the supreme leader of the Roman Empire at this point, Nero, or the governors that are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We see all the governors, Felix and and, uh, Festus, and we see Bernice, and we see all the immorality there. We know these are imperfect people, but the command of Peter is very clear. They're sent there. They have a job. Here's what the job is, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, this is the will of God, which I think goes back to the central verb, which is my submission to the Lord. And that's where it goes. It's clear in the rest of verse 15. I just gave you the first phrase of verse 15. It's clear we're talking about my submission to them. That's the will of God. And my submission is a good citizen in my country to my government, as imperfect as it is. Is something that pleases God if I understand, and in my case, in this particular government, I have a voice, a small voice, as small as it may be, though it may be, to express clearly as often as I can their role, which is to punish evil, biblically defined evil, and to praise those who do good, biblically defined good. That's the role of the government. But my role is to recognize, as imperfect as they are, I'm there to respond to them. Now, they've been sovereignly chosen by God. Now people say, well, I don't like Nero. He's clearly not God's choice for the job. Well, he is God's choice for the job because God clearly says over and over and over again, I am sovereign. I put people in place. Why would God give the first century Nero as, a, as an emperor? Well, apparently God thought that was the best choice for those people at the time. You may lament the leaders that we have, but the Bible's clear. Daniel chapter four, verse 17, the, the most high rules the kingdom of men and he gives it, to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And in some places and times, it's a lot lowlier than it was in the previous you know, leadership. There's, there's all kinds of people, even if we call them the, the, the lowest or the losers, God puts them in place because God is the one who, who sanctions out or divvies out his kingdom among people. God is a God who does that. And Daniel's a great book to describe that because when Nebuchadnezzar was pompous and and arrogant, you remember he got humbled and sent out into the field and he makes some remarkable statements about recognizing the fact that God is a sovereign God, giving and granting authority to those that have it. God sovereignly chooses these imperfect government officials. We're simply called to submit. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 24, another situation where you might say, there's no way God would want me to submit, take my family to Babylon, because they are yanking me out of my, my home and submit myself to Nebuchadnezzar. That makes no sense. Why would I, I, God would never ask me to do that. And he says, no, that's exactly what you do. Don't be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. That's the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon. Wow, are you kidding me? He's the enemy. We've been reading in, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. He is the enemy. Well, he's the enemy. I understand that. But he's the enemy that's sovereignly used by God to do what he wants to do with the people of God in Israel. And now he says that he's in charge. I want you to serve him and it shall be well with you. I will bless you for being obedient. When you submit yourself for the Lord's sake to the leadership of your country, God will bless you for that, even though that leadership is imperfect. And that's very hard to do. Now, you've got to understand the exceptions. And to do that, I would invite you to look up our series from Romans chapter 13. We entitled God's Ex-Patriots, which the graphic was so good, I decided to cut and put a little bit of this with our stamped up passport book. And the list was under that with all the sermons. So, God's expatriates. I clearly understand, I hope, and I think probably, at least I emphasize it more than than most, we are expatriates. The the, the country that I'm about, you don't notice we don't have flags flying around. I hate even to bring that up because that may be a sore spot for you. I'm not the typical country first kind of person. I understand that I am an expatriate. I am not first and foremost an American. I'm thankful for America. I get that. I realize that. Don't write me letters unless you really feel compelled to. I've read them before. I I know that you'd like a flag draped over the pulpit or whatever, but I'm not going to do it because it's not that I hate America. I love America. I'm grateful for America, but I'm an expatriate here. My citizenship is somewhere else. I'm here to do a job, and if I were to go to another country, as many of my good friends have, and have gone to those countries and submitted to those governments and to those, whatever they might be, the the parliaments of their country or the kings of their country, and in some cases, some very messed up governmental stuff, I would then be a part of that organization and willingly, as an expatriate there, Live for God. Now, I did write down the numbers for these if you're looking them up by number on the website, 11-18, 19, 20, and 21, which will go through in some cases what I call and most people call civil disobedience. When is it right for me to disobey my country. And there's always people on the fringe in our church, and you meet them, I I met one and now he went to jail for it, who says, you know, I'm not going to submit to the government. They're way over here and and they don't pay their taxes. And, you know, they're not going to, you know, I I know we're expatriates, but we submit to the government and finding that equilibrium about when to break the laws of this country and when to submit to them is what I deal with. in a couple of points in this series, uh, civil disobedience and uh, various other things in that series from Romans 13. So understand the exceptions. This isn't a blanket statement. I'm trying to emphasize this to make it clear that the government's got a role to do. As imperfectly as they may do it, we are there recognizing their godly ordained role. And they have an authority. They have authority over our lives. An authority over our lives. Now get back to it. That God is described both in First Peter and in Romans 13 uh, as punishing evil. And rewarding good. Now, punishing evil, that can be an evil that to you is so slight. And and yet they have the authority to do it. And as I said at the outset, here's the principle we're applying. That the threat of force is the thing that bridles sin. And if sin is unbridled, then there is the unleashing of of warfare. And warfare, but you said that's severe, that's death. I'm understanding that. I get that. And I need to, as I put, I think, in that series in Expatriates, we need to respect the government's right to kill us. I need to respect the government's right to kill me. And I need to understand that their rules are to be obeyed. and Only insofar as I can obey Christ in that. But I need to obey those rules and understand that at the ultimate end of how they enforce those is the fact that they can snuff my life out. Now, I grew up, as you know, uh, my dad uh, was a cop. My mom, you know, adjudicated uh, things at the at the city hall or wherever she was doing this kind of stuff. And so I hear a lot of rules growing up about a lot of things in the city. And I grew up in the city of Long Beach, and I remember my dad as a little kid uh, telling me it was illegal to spit on the sidewalk. Here it is, Municipal Code 9.30030. No person shall discard mucus... From the nose or mouth or spit upon any sidewalk or other paved area of any park or recreation center or upon any pier or promenade or other public place whatsoever, you cannot spit on on the stinking sidewalk. Now, when you're a kid and you learn to spit, it's fun to spit. And there's a season, and having raised three kids now, you know there's a season where they, they get good at it and they want to do it. And I remember doing it once in front of my father and him saying, that you can't do that. And I don't know how I got it in my head. He clearly said it in some fashion. That is illegal, man, against the law. You cannot spit on the sidewalk. So let's say I go to Long Beach tomorrow and spit on the sidewalk. cop comes up, says, do you know the Long Beach Municipal Code, 3.03030? I happen to know that. Yeah, says, you can't spit on Well, I had to spit, man. And I spit right there, and I didn't want to walk over to the grass. So I'm going to spit on the sidewalk. He says, well, you can't do that. I'm going to write you a ticket. And I say, write that ticket. I'll spit on that ticket. And he writes me the ticket. I spit on the ticket, and then I spit on him. Now, spitting, come on, not a big deal. little, uh, as a matter of fact, this is called the expectorant. <laughs> the expectorant code. Just a little discharge here. And he cuffs me up, takes me down to the booking desk and books me. And I spit on the sergeant behind the booking. And I put that little thing on you, right? That little mask on you so that you can't spit. So if you spit, it's going to get on that thing. So I get the spit mask on because I'm the spitter, right? Violator of code three point three or 9.30030. And I then am finally, I've got a hearing now. I'm, I'm, I'm brought before the judge and I get close enough and I spit on the judge. <laughs> judge... Gavel comes down, says, You're going to spend some time in the county jail. Go to the county jail. So I'm checking in the county jail. They're getting me, to- I spit on everybody there. So, you know, sentencing comes up. They sentence me, and I go away. I, I'm breaking records now. I go away under the California Penal Code. I have now, they have the jurisdiction. They send me to the prison. I'm now going to the penitentiary, the one out there in Blythe. In, in Blythe. There is a state penitentiary in Blythe. And as I go there, I meet the warden and I spit on him. Now, what have I done wrong? I just spat. I just spat. Is that the right use of the word? Spat. I spitted. I spat. Put spittle out of my mouth. on. I, come on. It's not a big deal. Warden gets mad at me. He says, no, you're going to solitary confinement. I say, no way. Not doing it. I spit and I run. I see a crack in the door there and I run out the door. See, you do know that California, penitentiary, the officers there. I mean, oh, I even put a picture. Most penitentiaries have, the, have this little tower up there. What is that for? Just getting a look at things. Is that what it's for? They can shoot you. So now I run for it. The door happens to be open, and I'm heading for the exit. And that guy shoots me in the back. Warden calls Carlin. Mike has been killed. Why did you kill him? Because, ultimately, he spit on the sidewalk. Right? Can the government rightfully, without prosecution or any immoral act before the holy God of the universe, kill Mike Fabares for spitting on the sidewalk? The answer is Yes. If that's, if that's my problem and through the whole process I am belligerent and, and, and I don't take the, the, the course of action and the just penalty for my problem and all I do is exacerbate it, not by doing anything greater. Right? I'm not a drug addict. I'm not involved in prostitution. I'm not doing, I haven't murdered anybody. I didn't rape anybody. I simply spit my way to running for it out of the, the gates of the Blythe Penitentiary and they shoot me in the back. That guy will clean his rifle and hopefully sleep like a baby because he didn't do anything wrong. But Carlin has to plan my funeral, to which I hope you will attend. But I'm dead. See what I'm saying? Every single thing that we do that becomes something that our government decides is a bad thing and they can punish us for it, in the end, the only enforcement they have is not i mean you can think of all the things in between they can fine us they can tax us they can they can detain us they can put us in jail overnight they can put us in the penitentiary they could even execute us they can certainly shoot me as i try to escape all of that is ultimately their exercise of god sanctioned authority to snuff my life out to punish wrongdoing. and the angels in heaven will sing right not because mike is so stupid to have lost his life over spitting but because the system worked and that's the authority granted by God and everyone should submit to that. That's what Romans 13 is all about. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there and look at the passage because if you haven't read the whole, at least the first six verses in its entirety and let it sunk in, then you need to understand the threat of force from the government being exactly what God sanctions, even the Roman government, even the imperfect government led by some pretty bad emperors. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing... Let every person, every person be subject to the governing authorities. Will they do things wrong? Yes. Are they imperfect? Yes. But even those imperfect ones are there because of God. For there is no authority except from God. Saddam Hussein was from God. Saddam Hussein was God. You bet. Every authority on the planet is from God. Sometimes it's his punishment on a people, on a generation, but... They're from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. If we didn't catch the first phrase, God makes it crystal clear. Therefore, ever resist the authority. If you say, I don't think I should get a ticket for spitting on the sidewalk, you can resist them. But you're resisting what God has appointed. And if you want to keep resisting what God has appointed, you will incur judgment. And that judgment will be judgment that will be carried out by God Himself through human instruments. God will be behind it all. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct. Spit on the grass, man. <laughs> but not on the sidewalk, not a terror for good conduct, for bad. You have no fear of the one who's in authority. If you do the right thing, then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. The government? Yes. The authorities? Yes. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid and you should be afraid. Why? Because they have force and the threat of that force. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Ultimately, the ultimate weapon of the government of Rome was swords and swords were not used for paddling. They were used for killing. For he is the servant of God, and the servant of God bears a sword? Absolutely. Not only that, let's use an even stronger word. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. So when he shot me running out of the prison after all that expectorant from my life for the past six months, that is, according to this text, the wrath of God. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Take your ticket if you did spit on the sidewalk and be on your way. Pay it. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, you ought to know better. God told us to obey and we should. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Now think about the taxes we're going to pay for Nero's party to wed these young teenage boys in the palace. You could say, I ain't paying taxes for that. You could say that, but you'd be wrong according to this passage. For the authorities are ministers of God. Well, there's some awfully bad ministers out there. You're you're absolutely right. Attending to this very thing. As imperfectly as they do it, and that's the thing that cannot stop us from seeing their role. They have the force and they, get, they are to use it. And if you look in the Bible for the second use of the law, first use of the law to bring me to conviction, to know my need for grace in the gospel. The third use of the law for me to know how to live my Christian life in sanctification, to know what God's moral rules are. And the second use of the law is for government to recognize what is evil and what is good so that they can create their penal codes to put the jurisdiction, the legislation, and the penalty on people for things that are, that are wrong. Or the benefits and the exemptions and the tax breaks or whatever it might be for the good behavior. Now we could look throughout the scripture at all the capital offenses. Some of them in the theocracy of the Old Testament were based on the ceremonial law. But if you look for the civil law that can be reflected in secular civil law, you'll find certainly things like this at the center of the ultimate use of force by the government is on those who have, created, who have committed the ultimate crimes. Genesis nine, after the flood, the statement was made, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. Do you know that if an ox gored a man, he was put to death. Right? That it didn't matter if he didn't understand what he was doing. The reality of this is important for us to catch in all that we see in our media today. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That. Was a principle restated multiple times. We could go all over the Bible. Let me give you a few. Leviticus 24:17. Whoever takes a human life surely shall be put to death. Different Hebrew phrase to describe what it means to take that life in a judicial way. That is sanctioned by God as a punishment for evildoers. And certainly in the Roman government, it was with a sword. In the old nomadic life of those coming out of Egypt, it was with stones that they were to be killed. Whoever kills an animal shall make good. Now, here's the difference. We looked at this in the week we dealt with the sanctity of life. At least the distinction between animals and man. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And we've talked about that in the context of some of these passages where it talks about restitution. You kill some guy's animal, there's restitution to be made. But whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule, by the way. This isn't something, don't get confused. It's not ceremonial. It's not related to the Levitical priesthood. It is not about something that relates to ceremonies of clean and unclean. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And when he stops to make that statement, to remember who's talking to you now. I'm the Lord your God. You know that's something that God's trying to put the emphasis on, the exclamation point on, the highlight on, and he does it repeatedly throughout the Bible. You take someone's life with malice aforethought, the reckoning of your blood has to be made. As a matter of fact, the Bible says there's an injustice in the land, and until your blood is atoned for, if you are murdered with malice aforethought, you, whoever shed that blood, that blood has to be shed, or there's injustice in the land. And that stacks up far enough, and God sees that as national sin, and war will break out against that nation at some point. Revelation six ten and 11 is to use something here from Christ's discussion with the saints in heaven they said oh sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth because during the tribulation they are killed they are beheaded they've been murdered they now are asking god hey when are you going to avenge us and god says what are you talking about i don't believe in capital punishment i don't believe in life for life anymore that was an old testament law i believe in grace and mercy No, they were given white robes and told to rest a little longer. What does that mean? It's coming. It's coming, and it's going to come when the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. There's more martyrs, and I'm going to avenge your blood, don't worry, who are to be killed as they themselves had been. Even Christ in the New Testament in the future still affirming the principle of life for life. Here's the problem with our lives today, and I can't emphasize this enough, and I could start a mini-sermon on this point. Don't let me do that. But the first five words are the problem. Your eye shall not pity. You shall not have compassion for these people. See, again, the simplistic reading of the Bible finds passages about compassion. And we have compassion. And when we have compassion, we think, well, that's a godly biblical virtue. I should have compassion. And then we see someone who kills someone, and we learn, well, they had a rough childhood. Well, they got some problems. Yeah, they got some disorders. They got some issues. You know, they really had a hard life. We now then allow our hearts to have pity on them. If I could take you through the Bible and show you how often God says, don't have pity here, don't have pity here, don't have pity here. I mean, it's a lot like, and this is an oversimplification, but you could read the, the Song of Solomon and say, here is passionate sexual attraction for this Shulamite bride of yours, and say, well, then that's a good thing then, and turn that in the wrong direction to the wrong person, your neighbor's wife, for instance, in Exodus 20, and all of a sudden now you're in sin. Is sexual lust and attraction good? Absolutely, in the right context. See, is compassion and mercy good? Is it good to be merciful? Well, God's going to be merciful to those who are merciful. I guess we should be merciful to everyone. There's a lot of passages, and we don't have time to catalog them here tonight. But do not pity. Do not show compassion. Do not let your eye pity. Because it's going to be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Oh, but New Testament, he overturned that in those statements we just read. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. In the context of his instructions regarding persecution for Christians because they're allied with Christ, he in no way overturned these principles. It was the misapplication of the principles in relationships with others on the Sermon on the Mount that he was concerned with. You have heard it said, and you act in this way. You've taken principles of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, and instead of seeing them as they're presented in Deuteronomy 19, as a principle of judicial, governmental, that's the context, we're in number three here, national application of people now with elders hearing the the witnesses and elders adjudicating the dispute, and with two or three witnesses coming forward. Having people now say eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, hand for hand, and life for life, they then said, well, I can act that way in all my relationships. You know, so-and-so gossiped about me on the patio after synagogue this week. I'm going to do it to them. I have no right now to take principles applied in other contexts and apply them in the wrong context. It was exactly what the Pharisees were doing, and Jesus had to correct in the Sermon on the Mount. But when it comes to the judicial act, of the government putting someone in the gas chamber and you reading your little crime novel or whatever you do to hear the story about the man's life and they play all the music and they show the upbringing. The Bible says, do not pity them. Don't let your heart have compassion. Hold back your compassion. Why? Because it's life for life. And when the gavel comes down on those who have done wrong and the evidence has been heard, do not pity them. Your eye shall not pity. That's a whole sermon in its own. I showed restraint. There's a lot in the Bible about that. And I call it misplaced compassion there's so much misplaced compassion in our society and in our christian circles and at some point you have to fight it which this passage says i should all right well this sounds like we're giving the government free reign and that's scary and it's going to create more mussolini's and hitler's and saddam hussein's and it's terrible and we shouldn't you know we should quite couldn't be shouldn't be so submissive and we shouldn't let them have gas chambers and firing squads and listen God pleases nat- national leaders. So clear. He will judge them. I had so many passages on this I wanted to show you, but I don't have time for them. I'll give you one from Psalm 2. The whole psalm is great as it relates to warning the people. The nations are raging. Why are they raging? God laughs. He holds them in derision. They sit there and think they have no accountability to God, but they do. And it ends with this. Verse 10. Therefore, O kings of the earth. That was the context. All you kings and nations be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Not talking to the rank and file, the citizens, the taxpayers. Talking now to leaders. Serve the Lord with fear. Now what is the service of the Lord in some Assyrian or Babylonian or or whatever it might be, whatever culture? What would that be? Well, the universal command that your government officials are to punish evil and reward good. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Be warned. God warns the leaders and In that sermon where I dealt with civil disobedience, I think it was in that sermon, I dealt with a number of passages that showed and emphasized the way that God is going to bring judgment on leaders. All right, number four, back of the page. Let's talk about warfare, international application. Principle of self defense, clearly in the scripture. Principle of judicial retribution. Absolutely biblical, and we're not doing it well in our country. I understand that locking guys up is not. I mean, the issues of, of retribution and, 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 and restitution and all those things should be a part of it, but it, it's, don't get me started on that. Warfare, transition to warfare. We've got to understand some important distinctions, and that's what my chart is about. I didn't realize I didn't have many charts this semester, so I thought it was time for a chart. So let's have a chart. Let's compare seven things here just to make the important distinctions as I think about warfare. Because everyone tries to take New Testament principles and tries to apply them to Old Testament scriptures that according to, and I think rightly so, the second use of the law are supposed to be implemented to describe how and guide how governments do what they do. And because they say, well, New Testament principle looks like this... An Old Testament principle looks like that, and they seem to be in conflict. We need to understand the distinction between these two testaments. So let's take the chart, and the first one you should already have. Clearly, we've got two testaments, the Old and the New Testament, Old and New Testament. And the addressee, who's the addressee? Well, Israel is the addressee in the Old Testament. And the addressee in the New Testament is the church, written to the Israel, written to the church. What kind of group is this? Well, the group of Israel is a nation living among nations. They're going to have borders. They're going to have threats. They're going to have commerce. They're going to have international commerce. They're going to have famines. They're going to have issues of trade in the midst of their famines. Nation among nations. Church is an international organization. And just to, you want a passage for that, I think of uh, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, we're starting with the patriarchs in the promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And from that, we have the nation built, and that's the reason, and that's in Genesis 12, that's the reason we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because we have the law and all the governmental, civil, and moral principles given to a nation among nations. International organization, I look at now the church being commissioned in uh, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So I'm now infiltrating all the nations. I'm an international group of people now, Christ followers, trying to win people to follow Christ. Number four, just to give you an example, taxes. In the Old Testament, the descriptions are there in the word and the principles that people are squeamish about that relate to governmental responsibility and oversight are all interspersed with things that would relate to how they collect taxes and how they spend taxes. Well, of course, in the New Testament, we have the reminder that we're to pay taxes. The group in the Old Testament is a nation and the leaders are learning how to function as a nation. Matter of fact, if you became a king in the Old Testament, one of the first things you were told to do at your inauguration is to go there, get a copy from the scribes of the law, and make yourself a handwritten copy of the law of the Old Testament so that you could know what the law is and not pervert justice. Well, that is very important. It guides the legislative leaders, the administrators of the, of the, of the, of the nation. But in the New Testament, we're talking to the rank and file, the international organization that are now going to be citizens all around the world paying taxes to various countries. Number five, to defend themselves and to advance their borders when it was called to do that. We'll look at why in a minute. That was done militarily. Military protection, military advancement, warfare, chariots, horses, defensive fortresses, swords. We're supposed to advance and defend theologically. I'm concerned about sound doctrine. I want our church not to be driven and tossed by the wind. I want the gospel to ring out in truth. I don't want people to twist what Paul wrote, even though they're hard to understand. I want to defend the church, and I want to advance the church in, in a way that clearly delineates the truth. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the defense and advancement is all theological. Number six, our warfare then is obviously defeating an army. If it's an attacking army or if it's the army trying to defend a wicked nation, I go and try and fight the army. And that's why David, as the leader of the army, thanks God for things like, thank you that you've trained my hand for warfare. Thanks that I'm good with the bow and the arrow and you've made me good at these things to kill people because I'm out here defeating armies. Of course, in the New Testament, Paul writes to Corinthians and says, Our job is to go to war, but not the weapons of the warfare that the world uses in their war. We use the word war, but our war is a war of ideas. And we're going to tear down everything that wants to raise itself up against the knowledge of God. And when there's heresy and there's, there's error, we want to correct it. And we're going to go out there and try and take every thought captive to Christ. And that's not a comment about my own brain. That's a comment about other people's brain. I want to take their thoughts captive to the truth about Christ. Therefore, when government powers are discussed, there's a lot of discussion or an instruction about peace and about war, about when to go to war, about how to go to war, about what war is all about, about how to establish peace treaties. All of that we'll find in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see a lot of instructions about peace, but it's about peace among brothers in the international organization and about persecution when the government decides to persecute us. But it doesn't speak of us now going to war, taking up arms. Understand those important distinctions, and that's just a sampling to try and make it clear in our mind, okay, and again, as I started tonight, you can't just read the book by pulling out your favorite lines and saying, I like that line in chapter 38, and I like that line in chapter 3, and I like that line in chapter 57. You would never read a book that way. God has a book that's cogent and coherent, and he wants us to understand it and understand the distinctions between the Old Testament instructions to Israel and the New Testament instructions to the church. Once we understand those, we'll understand that in the Old Testament, the descriptions about war in the Old Testament are given to a nation living among nations, just like every nation in the New Testament is going to have to figure out how to go about their job of punishing evil and rewarding good. Sometimes they're threatened by evil internationally on their borders, and they need to know when it's time to go to war. They have to go to war, and I'll call it last resort because, of course, that can't be an absolute statement. I suppose there's other things you could endlessly do, but the proverbial last resort. I just wanted to take a principle, for instance, to show that in the international organization, as it relates to even my life in the battle of ideas that I have and how I deal with things in my life, the Bible says, and as a person, this, this thing is true of me too. I need to be known, and if I'm known that way as a pastor, you need to be known that way as a congregant. First Peter 5 says you're supposed to follow the pattern of your leaders and their character. And the Bible says here of leaders, that an overseer, an episkopos, someone who oversees in the church, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, can't be a drunkard or a violent or greedy person. Now, the word violent there is the word uh, someone who strikes, who fights, who's ready to go at it, quick to drop the gloves, like the you know, hockey fans. You know, there's always that big forward that likes to drop his gloves or whatever. That, that person, pugnacious, that's the other old English word that was used to translate that, I think, in the King James Version, but someone who's just ready to fight all the time. You can't have someone who's quick to fight. It doesn't mean that your pastor is disqualified if you happen to find out that one of your pastors had to defend himself or his wife was being jumped in a parking lot and he gets a black eye. He's, he may get in a fight. That doesn't mean he's disqualified. But we're talking about that person that is quick-tempered, that person that is quick to strike. should be a last resort for individuals and certainly should be a last resort for nations. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds. And the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. All poetic. Now listen. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. You don't know what that means. Subjecting these people under you. Having them bring you tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. See, war should never be something in the Old Testament as we describe these nations that are delighting in it. Who take pleasure in it. We look through history and we see people and countries and leaders that delighted in war. Who enjoyed it. They loved suppressing people, and they had that lust for tribute. Deuteronomy chapter 20, by the way, we ended in Deuteronomy 19, I think, when we were looking at one example, one passage. The very next verse, as it talked about individual ethic now we move to national ethic when it came to a nation it says to the people of god when you draw near to a city to fight against it first thing you do is you offer terms of peace to it so the pattern and the flow chart even for the nation of israel as they're going out as fugitives from the the chariots of egypt and now they're going to set up their own nation he says you're going to go and fight in the future and when you do and you go up against the city the first thing you do is offer terms of peace now that's the normative instruction for Israel. Not in the conquest of Joshua. That's a different ball game. When things were under ban from God. But in a normal situation, the principles of Deuteronomy 20 have to do with warfare. And the first thing we ought to try to do is see: Is there any way we can get out of this? Now we got our bat- battering rams here, and we built our siege ramp. But is there any way we can come to peace? War is a last resort. One more on this: Ezekiel 33:1. Two more, I guess. God lives this principle out in his life. Doesn't he say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel, we're reading about God bringing his wrath on the people because, did you read the reading today? So graphic. Here's Samaria and Jerusalem or Israel and Judah being so unfaithful and God's going to come and bring his wrath against them. But he says, listen, I don't enjoy it. I take no pleasure in it. I don't delight in war, if you will. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. I don't want to go to war against the city, Deuteronomy says the leaders of the country should feel. I'd rather have peace. Is there any way we can have peace? Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? How about this one? This one came to mind. I added it at the last minute. Isaiah chapter 1, come, let us reason together come on, let's talk this over. Isaiah, just like Ezekiel, in terms of God's anger toward his people, in the first five chapters, he describes how bad it had gotten, and he says, can we just talk? Though your sins are like scarlet, you've done so many bad things that deserve judgment. They can be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they can be white like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you've got to change. You shall eat the good of the land, and then I guess I tacked on verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword. I'll bring war. I just don't want to. I'd rather sit and talk this out. I'd rather reason this out. I'd rather you repent. Now, he's not into compromise, not the kind of compromise that would compromise the principle of evil and good, but he's willing here to see people repent, just like when the battering rams are ready to take down the city in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Why don't you try one more time to get terms of peace if you possibly can? So the biblical principle is clear, and I don't think I have to press that any harder. God is a God who'd rather not have nations war against each other we'd rather find peace if there's any way that we can but the principles that guide now the early church often was known as a pacifistic church there's lots of reasons for that i suppose but as the church started to recognize the scripture did not teach this international organization wasn't necessarily going to be around for a long time in other words though they were ready for the imminent return of christ they realized now we have to really be ready to live long term here And we've got to understand that there are going to be issues where Christians have an ability to voice what should go on in a nation. And so they came up with principles of what we call, and I wish I had more time to compare it with other theories, but what we like to call just war theory. From Augustine and and crystallized in Thomas Aquinas uh, in the medieval days, we had kind of a, uh, a way at least to put our labels on things that had to be just or right or righteous. And when it comes to these Phrases, they're just because they're so common out there. I thought I would add them. "Juice ad bellum." That should be easy to decipher. "Juice" as in just. Um, "Bellum," the warfare. It's, it's a just cause. It's the right cause. It's the right reason. In the sermon I preached in the expatriate series called When Kingdoms Clash, I go into more detail on some of these issues, and maybe that would be a good sermon to review. But right now, with a few minutes left, we'll just skim these principles. But if you're going to go to war, it better be a just cause. It ought to be the last resort, obviously. I think of uh, Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, the leaders, he holds his judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? Show partiality to the wicked. I understand that you want to you know, make deals and reason, but look what you're doing. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That is a discussion of God in this proverbial court of leaders saying, Time for you leaders... To see that there's injustice and sometimes you have to intervene even in situations where you're not just defending your borders. And I know this is a huge topic, but jus ad bellum to justify our causes before we go to war uh, is critical. Then there ought to be just engagement just engagement and i already mentioned deuteronomy 20 but if you read through deuteronomy 20 you'll get uh, a lot more about what you do when you go to war against your enemies the assumption was you're going to become a nation here already made you a nation in terms of number one day you're going to even have a king and you'll certainly have armies and you're gonna have to go to war and when you do do it this way Juice in bellow means that you are acting justly in the war, which, of course, we are now engaged in warfare in our world with people that aren't willing to war justly. In the olden days, you marked your aircraft, you wore uniforms, you, you didn't involve civilians as shields, you you had rules of engagement, and that's what we're dealing with with just war engagement. You know that old phrase, Every, everything's fair in love and war? Clearly not the case in anybody's book. It's certainly not. There's rules for engagement. That's why there's war tribunals and Geneva Conventions and prisoner of war pacts and weapons rules, all of these things. And we're living in a very interesting time where people don't want to play by the rules. And it's hard for us to justly engage the unjust armies that will not justly engage. A lot more on that another time, perhaps. Just postbellum, the ability to end a war with the right conditions, to have just conditions for peace. And that's certainly the case. And I don't have time to take you there, but Second Chronicles 28, the first 15 verse would be a great little case study on watching the just post in action a test case. Ahaz had you know, acted wickedly in Judah. God had stirred up Syria to go to war against them. Israel joins in and helps rout Judah. And then there has to be this settling of the war. There's... And in modern day, we talk about, as I said, war trials and reconstruction and, and terms of settlement. All of that is spelled out in one case, at least there, in Second Chronicles 28, principles that guide us. So, just causes, just engagement, righteous engagement, and just conditions to end the conflict. Now, you study history, even American history, in our best, I mean, you can see great examples even in modern history i think of that i mean things have fallen apart of late it seems but even in the history of warfare we've seen some great examples i think of all three of those in many engagements some have been lacking others haven't but this has been the position i think of most in i i could say the majority of thinkers in church history and i think it's a good way for us to think it through more time on on that another time One last thing I want to add to this letter D is just the New Testament government fighters. I want to put it that way. We often call them soldiers, but we made such a flannel graph image in our mind of the Roman soldiers that I want to be clear. They were fighters. They were equipped with weapons to kill people. And just three passages that are worth writing down to study later. I figured I'd be at this point in the lecture in that I didn't put them on the screen other than the references. But I want to remind you of what we studied in Luke 3 when the soldiers came and they asked John the Baptist, a preacher here who was preaching righteousness and repentance, what they were supposed to do. You had the tax collectors. They were doing immoral things with their tax collecting. And he said, do this morally because you can be a tax collector if you don't overcharge people. And it, it is an honorable job if you do it honorably. And then you had these soldiers that came, so what should we do? We want to repent and live according to the law of God and justly and righteously. We want to repent from our sin. What should we do? And he speaks about a couple of things. Don't be grumbling about your wages and don't extort people for their for their money. So, you know, if if prostitute comes to John the Baptist and says, we want to repent, what should we do? He wouldn't say, well, you know, just charge, the, charge a fair amount, would you, when you turn your tricks? Because that would just be the right, we don't want to overcharge people for your immorality. Never. And yet here are these soldiers coming, and John the Baptist, who Jesus said is the greatest preacher ever. If there's a glaring error in, Acts 3, in Luke 3, I'm thinking Jesus would point this out to us when he praises him without mitigation. Great preacher, greatest preacher. And he's telling soldiers to do what? To be good soldiers. Even that, think about that. 2 Timothy 2, be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You, would you ever see the implementation of an immoral thing being used as a description of how I'm supposed to live my Christian life? Be a good prostitute for the Lord. You'd never see that. Be a good adulteress for Jesus. Not literally, I mean it kind of figuratively. It wouldn't work. But be a good soldier of Christ Jesus, you see that? Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. Clearly this is something that is honored, Matthew Chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. That's the example of the Roman centurion. Centurion, by the way, was a leader of 80 soldiers, 80 to 100. Of course, that's what the name means, 100. But in first century Rome, probably about 80 soldiers. And here is a guy leading a battalion of people, not a literal battalion, but a group of people. This centurion is honored, and he's praised. And he's praised by the Jewish leaders. And where is the condemnation if this guy cannot bear the sword and go to war and be a godly man. And if you want a description of a godly man, here's God's description of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. God, him, and this isn't just Luke saying this in Acts 10, this is God saying he's a devout man, he feared God. His prayers were ascending and his alms were coming up before God as a memorial. God loved this man and loved his life and he didn't say, well you know what, you really should stop being a soldier because that's an immoral thing to do. So God, for now, recognizes the reality of warfare. It's going to be with us until the king comes, and when he comes, he'll come with a war to end all wars, at least until the end of the millennial kingdom. And we need to recognize the morality of force and the threat of force being used to curtail sin. And when sin is unbridled, war is often the answer. My neighbor has a bumper sticker on his car that says, war is not the answer. I think of a brand new reason to approach him with another scenario that would clearly lead him to admit that sometimes war is the answer. But I never seem to have that conversation with him about that, because that's obviously secondary. He needs Christ. and We've had some talk about God's word, but it didn't go well. Anyway, don't get into my personal psychosis here. All I'm saying is to say war is not the answer is an incredibly naive and even a biblical thing to say, when in many cases, it is the right answer, as unpleasant as that is. All right, with one minute to spare, Let's pray. God, thanks for our time to study your word and these very unpleasant things, even envisioning as we did tonight, being shot in the back by a tower guard, uh, being sent to an electric chair or a firing squad, being executed by the state, being killed in warfare. All these things are very unpleasant for us, but without even the threat of force, and, and without that, we, we have sin just run amok in this sinful world. But until the world all submit to the rising of God and the mountain of God in Zion, one day is the mountain above all mountains. Everyone's streaming to find out what the next good thing the Lord has to say about how we're to live until the nations all willingly submit to the Lordship of Christ, want to know his law. There's going to be rebellious hearts and there are going to be people that are going to be violent and threatening because of that. Unfortunately, in this world, our swords can't yet be turned into plowshares. So help us to understand that the love of war, the thirst for it. And I know I've met some people here from here on the base that love it. And that's just wrong. It's sinful. We don't want to love it. But we would want to, like David, when the threat is real, to be good at it, to be proficient at it, to be skilled in it, to be trusting you, not even in our military force or our modern mechanisms of warfare, but to trust, as the Bible says, not in chariots or horses, but in the name of the Lord, even as a country Let us return to recognize that right has to be defined by you and that we have to defend the right, sometimes not just when it's attacking our borders, but sometimes in various places around the globe, as unpopular as that is in some circles. We certainly want as much evil restrained in this world as we possibly can until the day when the rebels are cast out, the enemies are vanquished. And peace is established. We look forward to that. We look forward even beyond the millennium to the eternal kingdom where every heart is tested, every body is glorified, and everyone is in the kingdom loving your son and just eating and feeding on the truth that comes from you. We look forward to that day, God, established and secured and confirmed in righteousness. God, until then, keep us sharp and wise. Let us vote and speak and think in ways that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name.